to live the creative life, for, for so many of us women to finally live the creative life, to do what we've always wanted to do, that we've had a burning passion for maybe since high school, since our mm -hmm. teens or mm -hmm. since we were young women, to finally take the plunge and risk is a glorious and supremely satisfying thing. Welcome to Writes for Women, a podcast all about celebrating women's voices and supporting women writers. I'm Pamela Cook, women's fiction author, writing teacher, mentor and podcaster. Before beginning today's chat, I would like to acknowledge and pay my respects to the Dharawal people, the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is being recorded, along with the traditional owners of the land throughout Australia, and pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. And a quick reminder that there could be strong language and adult concepts discussed in this podcast, so please be aware of this if you have children around. Now, let's relax on the Convo couch and chat to this week's guest. I'm really looking forward to chatting to you about this because um, I think I mentioned to you when I met you at Storyfest that Shiva was actually, and this is this is not just blowing smoke. Shiva was actually one of the first books that I read that made me want to be a writer. I so, yeah, it was fantastic to read this because of the connection to Shiva, obviously, and the rest of your writing life. But, but before we do this, I'm going to welcome you to the Rights for Women podcast, Nikki Gemmell. Thank you. It is just such a joy to be here with you, Pamela. Thank you. And thank you for taking the time out. For anybody who, who may not be seeing this, but Nikki is in her car, um, <laughs> currently waiting to do a parent. I've just raced back from grandmother Judy. So, you know, <laughs> it's all very appropriate considering what we're going to discuss, I think, and dissolve. Oh, my goodness. So, yeah, Nikki, as I was saying, Shiva has been very important in my writing life. And so I was really glad to read Dissolve and to see the connection between those two books. But for everybody who's listening, could you maybe tell us a bit on what Dissolve is about and where you got the idea for writing it? Okay. Um, Dissolve is a deeply, deeply personal book that I've wanted to write about for years, but I didn't feel ready for years, for decades really. It's about a time in my life uh, when I was in my early 20s to mid-20s, I fell in love with someone, a fellow writer, and I was basically just fascinated by the dynamic of what happens to women, creative women, when they are subsumed by the male ego and kind of the unseeing unthinking in a way aura of male genius that surrounds you. Someone who's read both Dissolve and Helen Garner's most recent diary said that there's almost uncanny similarities in terms of what we are talking about, just being a, a female immersed in a creative heterosexual relationship. I was interested in the idea of male genius, of a woman dissolving mm. with relationship I was very young I was a pleaser I changed for this man it took me years decades to process this situation and I've only been able to write about it now and I was also fascinated by you know I looked back at many many creative partnerships 
Ted Hughes and Sylvia Plath, Charmian Clift and George Johnson, and not only writers, but visual artists like Camille Claudel and Rodin, Dora Maar and Picasso. So I was fascinated Mm. about what happens to women, creative women, when they're trying to carve out the space and the silence and the serenity for themselves to create within a relationship where there's an alpha male creative who sucks up a lot of the oxygen of the relationship. Really interesting and, of course, fantastic title too, Nikki. When I first opened the book, I kept thinking, Dissolve, okay, I wonder where that title comes from. And then it emerged quite quickly exactly what you were getting at. Yeah, exactly. It's a theme that runs through the book. There was some talk early on with my publishers that they wanted to change the title. And I was like, you know, after so many books, 20 odd books, I've just given up in terms of the marketing battles and the, 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 yeah. the perspective, what's going to work in a bookshop. But for me, the title Dissolved came very, very strongly because it's it's what I felt was happening to me during that relationship. I was losing myself. I was meant to be someone who I didn't necessarily want to be, Mm. but I willingly subsuming myself because of, you know, trying to chase that elusive thing of love and a relationship and solidity within life and settling down and all those alluring things that are dangled in front of us as young women. actually very destructive for me yeah I'm just thinking as you're talking about this of course it is about your journey as a creative woman and the impact that that relationship had on your creativity but just as you were talking about that I think it's a a very common story for all women so I think many women perhaps don't even get a chance to find that any scrap of creativity before they are immersed in a relationship like this and then you know where is it gone Yes, yes, absolutely. In a way, you know, we're shunted aside of our lives. So many of us, most of us, so many women have read this and just said, oh, my goodness, this is my story, or they've been weeping as they've read it. They've they've just Mm. felt like so excruciatingly close to the bone. And these women, they aren't necessarily artists at all. It just seems to be, you know... And I wouldn't say a rite of passage because it's it's a horrible rite of passage to go through, but it is a a learning rite of passage for a lot of us Mm. that 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 volcanic muscular first love where we are lost within a relationship. How do we get out of that? How do we find ourselves? All those things are being poured into the book. And it's not just a personal story. I wrote it as a feminist manifesto in a way for the beautiful young women around me as warning mm. uh, as an instruction manual that kind of thing yeah you said Nikki you had to obviously had to have decades of uh, distance from that relationship in order to process it and then to be able to put it you know into into words the way you have was there anything happening um in society like in the last few years the time that you wrote dissolved that also pushed you to write it now? Absolutely. It was the Me Too movement. Fascinated by that over the last four or five years, that feeling that women are finding their voices and reassessing their lives and their histories and going, hang on, what happened to me when I was an impressionable impressionable young woman? 
that wasn't right. And that that was very destructive to mm. my son, whatever it was. You know, for me, I was going back to within Dissolve early work experiences that I had, the, the very bleak night when I lost my virginity, you know, times in my early 20s, which were long stretches of aloneness punctuated by kind of desperate, despairing one night stands where I was thinking, why aren't I enjoying this? Why isn't the sex better? What's wrong with me? And it was always, I'm the problem here. I'll, I'll never be loved. I'll never have a relationship. And within the lens of the Me Too movement, I was seeing so much in an entirely different way. So I'm so grateful for that movement, you know, for for it helping us to articulate injustices or our truths, really. Yeah, yeah. that's what started this podcast, actually, the Me Too movement as well. Obviously, the central relationship that you discuss in the book is your relationship with W, who remains anonymous. But could you talk a little bit about how that relationship, how you felt it did, you know, suffocate you and impact your creativity in particular? Well, I was fascinated early on through university and then out in the world, wide world, where I had this secret burning desire to be a writer. But as a young woman, as a female, I felt it was it was hard to articulate this. It was like... I didn't want to be boasty. I was the perfectionist who was absolutely afraid of failure in mm. the right area. It just felt like there were a lot of obstacles in my way. I didn't come from a writing family at all. I was the first in my family to finish university. When I told my father that, you know, I was thinking of writing books for a living, I can just remember him saying, oh, waste of time, that. Because, you know, it was just so risky and out of his orbit and he couldn't yeah. see a make a living from writing books still hard so you you were someone who already had this burning desire you knew you had these creative urges and tendencies you wanted to write you wanted yes. to write fiction so how did yes. that relationship sort of erode that away oh yes well the main thing that fascinated me with the, with the man who took my virginity who was also a writer and this man that I'm writing about in Dissolve which which was a relationship that happened in my mid-20s and he was a writer too their confidence, the male confidence mm. was extraordinary. To come up against that as an insecure female who was always trying to be someone else and, and kind of had a terrible case of imposter syndrome, which I still do, to come up against that male expectation of success in their own mm. sphere. These were men who had kind of grown up and navigated their way through their profession, knowing they would be writers, expecting they would be writers, having their lives, their lives mapped out for them as writers. I was fascinated by that. I wanted that confidence because I felt like it was rocket fuel to mm. start writing myself and I still feel like confidence is such an important thing when you are writing it is so easy to lose your confidence I'm in a bit of a trough now I've just I just you know and I, I thought you know 20 years down the track you know I, I had this game down pat I knew what I was doing I knew how to write a book but confidence comes and goes and at the yeah. moment it's like wow I'm, I'm really gonna have to get myself out of this to keep on going. There's a lot of vulnerability with mm -hmm. writing. 
and, and I didn't necessarily see that with these young men who, you know, were walking around in the world proclaiming that they were the writers or that they were going to be the writers. I was fascinated by that and I just wished I had some of that self-belief. Mm. But as a young man, I, I didn't. And so that didn't, it, I guess it's the nature of that that patriarchal relationship really, but that confidence and the the idea of being inspired to write and everything that didn't sort of rub off from him onto you it had like an opposite effect almost I know it's so odd and this is what took me years to process I just didn't understand I was so in love with the idea of love Mm. I was willing to subsume my burning passion which was to write I was willing to throw that all away for the one elusive thing in my life which was love and a relationship and being able to settle down and have kids and all the rest of it I must say that within Dissolve it it, it details the situation where we were going to get married and he took me out to a restaurant before the wedding and just said I can't do it I can't go through with this and that broke me in a way I've I've never been broken. I've had a lot of stuff happen in my life, but that was, oh, my God, that was just, it, it just felled me because I thought I could vaguely control things and how life was going to pan out. And that was the first big one when I realised that, I, you know, it was all quicksand. Mm. And then she, and I, I, I couldn't work it out. You know, I look back now and I think, you know, he gave me the biggest gift when he said, yeah. I can't marry you because I hauled myself out and I got myself through. But at the time I was just like, you know, I, I was a mess. Yeah. And I wasn't writing at all. You know, I'd had an apprenticeship as a writer of getting short stories published. So my first short story was published in my late teens in one of Australia's literary journals. And I spent, you know, all during my kind of late teens, early 20s, saturation bombardment, I used to call it. I would send off 10 <laughs> copies of my short story, which would take me, you know, like six months or a year, right? Yeah. And I would send that off to, you know, 10 different literary magazines. And I know you're meant to wait. Well, in those days you were, you know, meant to yeah. wait. Rejection comes through. And I just thought, I'll oh, bugger that. I'm going to so send it to and grey, yeah. And, and, and that was the rhythm of my writing life back then. You know, a rejection, a, a, an acceptance out of all the rejections maybe once a year. Yeah. But that little scrap of confidence would keep me going it was that tiny little bit of petrol that I needed to think maybe I am on the right track here it was Les Murray who took my very first story and that was just like that that wasn't just a little scrap of petrol that was the rocket fuel that you know kept me going for years but when I was in this relationship with W the established writer I didn't write a thing Mm. And I realise now that writing is central to my equilibrium. It it keeps me even. My husband, who I've now been married to for 23 years, he he knows when I can't write or when I'm not writing enough. And he says, just go away, just get out of the house, just go, go and write. Because I become a bad mother then. I, you know, I become a shouty mother. I get frustrated. I mm. my- soul is rattled because I can't do what I really want to do in life which is right so my my 
partner now, you know, I feel like he's such a gift in terms of a creative relationship because he just lets me be who I really want to be mm. and he do what I really want to do. Mm. It's wonderful, wonderful. I am very lucky. I've got a very similar partner in that way. So what a blessing. Oh, we are very blessed. As we, we were talking about this whole idea of the, the patriarchal attitude of women sort of knowing their place, you know, it was like you subconsciously in that relationship knew, okay, well, this is my job is to support him. And then even while you part of you railed against that internally, it, it was this sort of subconscious knowing. There's a quote just from the book. You talk about womanhood being a journey into silence and the world wanting quietness and subservience. Do you think that that sort of thing or that idea is still as true now as then? No, I think it's changing. You know, I look mm. at my daughter and her generation. She's a teenager. We have a voice mm. and we call it out. You know, Edith Wharton, writing 100 years ago, talked about, or more than 100 years, talked about a curtain of niceness that befalls young women. Mm. I have seen it again and again through my life, you know, strong, sparky, stubborn, outspoken, blunt, prepubescent girls. And then as we head into the teenage years, go through puberty, become young women, something happens to us. We lose our confidence. We start to learn our place in the world. And it's a quieter place. It's a place that doesn't centre us as humans. It puts the man at the centre of our world and defend that it is literally it feels like a curtain of niceness mm. but I look at young women now and they are like whoa watch out world you know it's like they they've got a voice and they use it and for me that's that's magnificent I do think though our Achilles heel will always be biology I think you know mm. we are many of us you know, we are programmed to re reproduce, to find a partner. And so we will seek out love, the relationship and all the rest of it. And I think that's the one thing that will always fell us as women, no matter how strong and articulate and outspoken and stubborn we are. There's a lot of us who will subsume that, who will quieten our voices mm -hmm. Um, our loudness, our brittleness, our selfishness, our anger. You know, I think anger is a good thing for a woman. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of us that will kind of dissolve that to find love and to keep yeah. love. Yeah, I agree. And that that path that, you know, that motherhood can send you down where you are the primary caregiver and all those things that you then have to renegotiate almost those roles, don't you? Yeah. Yes, mm -hmm. that's right. Yeah. Where do you see the role of social media now fitting into all this idea of, you know, self-image for women, Nikki? The, the pressure that social media puts on young women, I think, in particular, completely different to our, you know, gen earlier generations. Oh, look, I think it can be incredibly destructive. I, You know, I, I look at what goes on around me with the young women now. I think exclusion is bullying. And I think it is so easy to female over the edge, particularly during those formative years of their early teens, their late teens, when they're trying to work out who they are themselves, trying to be comfortable in their skins and have so many multiple images and messages and judgments being bombarded by it's it's hellish I, I think you know if I was a teenager now 
I do not, I just don't think I would have had the strength or the resilience to cope with social media. My daughter said to me the other day, she's made a new friend, but she said, oh, she's not on social media at all, mum, so I can't contact her. And it's like, wow, right, that's strong. You know, yeah. that, that's, that's a, a young female making a statement and being very strong with that. And I haven't met her yet, but I thought, I bet she's very comfortable in her skin and she knows exactly who she is and she's not going to, you know, be deviated from that path all power to her, that's a gift. For me, it was a much more kind of vulnerable, traumatic path. I really didn't feel like I gained strength and really knew who I was in a powerful way until my 40s. And now that I'm in my 50s, it's like, wow, you know, just having <laughs> embrace the power of no saying, no, I don't want to be your slave. No, I don't want to do this. If I, if I don't feel like going out, I don't want to. All those things, I feel like I lived decades of my life for other people yeah. and I'm just like, oh, bring on the menopause and bring on the liberation that's beyond it. I can't wait to stop <laughs> waiting and, and, you know, all the rest of it and being the slave of everyone. I'm going to embrace it, <laughs> and I am already. <laughs> Good for you. I agree completely. Nikki, you reference Indissolve quite a bit, and you you have little excerpts in there too from your journals, and I take it that you are a big journaler. Or journaler, is that a word? I don't know. No. How do you see the role of journaling in your creative life, you know, both in the past and now? Oh, look, the journals have always been central to my life. That They would be the one thing I would rescue in a fire apart from the kids and the, the husband and the dog. Um, when I was in year eight, I had this wonderful, wonderful English teacher, Mrs Ting, who I went to a convent school, all girls, and she handed out all these journals one day, blank journals, and she beautiful hardback volumes, and she just said, girls, I want you to write in these a page a day. I'm, I'm going to collect them every Friday and just flip through them, not to read them. I just want to see that you've filled them up with something. And that English lesson from year eight wow. has stayed with me ever since. And basically in a, in a little cabinet next to my bed, I've got forgotten how many now, maybe 37, 38. But basically I have written in those journals from the age of 14, from year eight. Mm. And what I do with all my writing, I go back and I mine them. You know, they're full of quotes, which I often use in my newspaper column that I have, or they've got uh, title ideas. I've got an idea yeah. for a book. I'm just, I've got in my head, I must go back to my journal and just just have a look at, you know, the titles that I've been writing for the last couple of years that I haven't used and something might stick. It's, it's, they've got scraps of conversation in there, you know, something I might have heard, you know, in an airport terminal or, or yeah. whatever it was. Descriptions of people might be one line or two lines, descriptions of landscape. So when I'm confronted with a new novel in particular, I will go back to those journals and mine them they've been such a rich source of words for me for for years for decades because I write to understand and I guess the the first questions that I always have when confronted by something new or different they're written out in my journals and so mm. I will go back to them to flesh something out 
Yeah, I love that. And I, I was, I've always been a big journal writer, but the last few years I haven't done it, but it's sort of inspired me reading Dissolve to go back and, and get oh, back into that again. Yeah. We're busy, Pamela. We're all we are. busy. You know, we've got grandkids and kids and, yeah. and tugging at us. So I must admit I'm the same now and I only really go back into my journals when something really big has happened that I think, yeah. oh, I'm this or if I um, think of a, a title that I want you know for future use but I certainly don't do the journals near as much as what I did in my teens my 20s my 30s you yeah. know my, my first child gets page after page he sucked his toe today whatever poor fourth child is barely in it to get so it yeah embarrassment in the future but anyway <laughs> <laughs> Worry about that later. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> well, you mentioned before a number of uh, women writers and artists, you know, who use sites throughout Dissolve as well. One of those was Sylvia Plath, and she wrote that the greatest enemy to creativity is self-doubt. And you've talked a bit, a little bit about imposter syndrome and self-doubt. But what do you think are the other great enemies of creativity? You know, time. Mm. So hard for women to carve out time to do their creative work, to do what they really want to do. We have so many demands and expectations upon us still. You know, I, I look at the young generation now and I think, oh, God, you know, just you wait. You'll, you'll, you'll have it too. Hopefully they'll be a little bit louder and bolshier with saying no. I need some me time. I need to find out who I really am. I'm I'm drowning amid all these demands. But for me, my whole kind of last couple of decades have been a struggle to carve out space, time, serenity, quietness, which will give me the kind of the clearness to think and to write. It's been very hard. My, my last novel, The Ripping Tree, took me 10 years to write because literally raising kids, I, it was just really hard for me to find time within the busyness of the day to do it. When I was younger, I could write till midnight, fueled by champagne. Yeah. And, you know, I, I had an extraordinary energy. Now it's like, oh, my God, you know, I want to be in bed by 9 p.m. So yeah. Yeah. I've gone days when I could work late into the night I have to carve out writing time at 9am when those kids are all off at school or whatever and then you know I have to stop writing at 3pm mm -hmm. when they're home so I've got six precious hours during the day to just go for it and I am so disciplined with those six hours I am not going to waste the time stacking the dishwasher or putting on the load of washing or changing the sheets that can all be done where the kids when the kids are at home yeah. underfoot around me because I need that clear space but yeah. I would say that's one of the hardest things for us as creative people and in terms of all the different women all the examples that I put into Dissolve you know there was an expectation with a lot of them that they would be the muse for mm. a male creative genius who who they were having a relationship they would be the secretary they would be the cook you know the housekeeper all the rest of it it's hard yeah, the support person. Yeah. Nikki, another another connection that I really noticed because of my love of Shiva, of course, was you spent a lot of time in Alice Springs working as a journalist and your relationship with W developed over that time. He was in Sydney, you were in Alice Springs. So you were in the desert 
you were very comfortable in that space. You loved it out there. Uh, and, of course, the desert is is a very strong landscape in Shiva, as is Antarctica. Yes. When you broke up with W, I think four, four or so years later, you did write your first novel, which was published Shiva. And there's there's a scene that you discuss in there which just absolutely made me cringe, but where you were doing a a master's, I think, in creative writing and the lecturer read out a few negative lines from a review you got for Shiva. He read it out in class while you were there. Can you talk a little bit about that experience? And I imagine how mortifying it must have been. Look, I, I still cringe. I still, I still, I can still recall the flame oh. of cheeks as he did that. It was, you know, Shiva was my first novel with all this insecurities that that entails. And, yeah, it, the lecturer in creative writing who'd never published a book himself. No, of course not. But about older man, you know, he didn't say anything, didn't say anything as the book came out, even though, you know, it was known that I'd, I'd actually done it you know the holy grail of getting something published Mm. and then the review came out and I was devastated and I can just remember for some reason he chose to read out the review but only the really bad and you know in terms of everything for a woman's a young woman's self-belief sense of self-belief you know imposter syndrome thinking I wasn't good at this and uh, good enough at this and that you know I was lucky to get it happening in my life anyway it it was devastating at the Mm -hmm. time but also very very instructive about how it was hard for men to make way for us yeah young women for female writers in those days the implication from this man was that I was taking up space that should go to someone more of his kind perhaps and you know that was a different era then I look look, that was I was 30 then so that was that was like 25 years ago and I look at publishing now and I think it's it's incredibly exciting Mm -hmm. it's it's diverse it's inclusive it's so much more interesting you know the voices that we're hearing from now it's like bring them on and you I feel like, you know, it's time for me to sit back and just let these new loud voices, just let's celebrate them because, you know, it's wonderful that they've got a platform, that they've finally got a platform. And I just love what's happening in the publishing industry now. Oh, yeah, it's great, isn't it? So the other thing I wanted to ask you about the publication of Shiva is reading Dissolve and and your thoughts on that relationship with W. Well, first of all, do you think that you would have published Shiva at that time had you married W or stayed with him? And no, no I, I thought the answer would be no. <laughs> but how did it feel? You know, how did it feel when you actually held that book in your hands? I'm sure you can remember and then thought of it in light of that relationship and the breakup of the relationship. What was that like for you? It, it was an extraordinary moment and I don't think in terms of my publishing history, now that I'm maybe 22, 23 books down the track, I don't think I've ever been able to replicate that feeling of receiving the box of books in my mm. King's Cross flat, you know, the mint editions of Shiva and opening that box and just lifting out a copy of my own book. Yeah. Cracking the spine and just 
smelling it and kind of completely in almost disbelief that this this magical moment was happening i've i've never felt like that again but no i if i had stayed with wi i perhaps would never have written mm. i i I, I experienced such a profound loss of confidence and I just felt like there wasn't space in that relationship for two of us as creative people. He's a good man. He's, a, he's you know, he's a, he's a great writer and a great man and he didn't do anything wrong within the yeah. relationship. I just think he didn't see it. Had no idea that I was going through this when I was with him and silly me i wasn't articulating my kind of deep roaring ambition that was burning inside me this mm. fierce intense little flame it was like all through my life as a young woman with men i was reducing myself i was making myself lesser lesser in terms of intelligence in terms of how articulate i was and you know, my questions, I, I still cop it for asking uncomfortable questions. But that, back then, you know, it's like you listen to the world around you. And I, I was constantly getting the message that I was wrong to be questioning and loud and not understanding why the sex wasn't better or why can't I have that confidence that, that the male writers around me have? Why does it seem so relatively easy for them all those different things, I was reducing myself, um, making myself less up, but I was doing it to myself, fit in to what I thought successful womanhood should be. Mm. And I think that that was the accepted way at the time too, wasn't it? It was, you know, that's that's how we were expected to be. So because it wasn't I, just a matter of you doing it and nobody else. I think, you know, most women did. Exactly. I wouldn't be a successful woman or being be seen as a successful woman if I maintained, you know, my loudness and my yeah, all of that. Mm. So good that we got over that. I know that we we I'm conscious of the time. There's a couple of quick things I want to ask you. One of the things you say in the book that really struck a chord with me as well is it's the act of writing that sustains you, as in you, not the selling of words. So. Could you talk a little bit about this idea of writing as sustenance as opposed to writing for publication? How have you found bridging that gap over the years? I'll look for, you know, through my decades of writing, it's been like 30 years now that I've mm. been writing. I've always had this real tussle between my absolute joy at creating and just writing but then um, having to go out there into, into the world and explain what I do mm. and sell what I do to the world. One of my problems is that even though I come across as very much out there and, I, you know, a people person and confident, I'm actually very shy. I hate parties and I, I, I find it hard to do that whole thrusting side of being out in the world and saying this is me this is me this mm. is my and I think that's been a real dilemma throughout my writing career I thought I'd cracked it with my fourth novel The Bride Strip Bear I thought I, I had lucked on the perfect solution which was to write it anonymously uh, yes uh, yeah. that that blew up in my face completely, you know, and then I was suddenly completely misrepresented in terms of the motives for that book and I thought, mm -hmm. oh, my God, I've shot myself, I've shot 
my literary career in the foot. And then, you know, lo and behold, 10, 15 years after that, Elena Ferranti, and I just look yeah. at her envy. And yeah, I think I bet. <laughs> she, she pulled it off, yeah. you know, able to just concentrate on her writing in a bubble of solitude. She doesn't have to go out there and be the face of the writing to the world. And for me, that is just, that would, that would be the ultimate. That mm-hmm. would be such a wonderful model as a writer. But I had my chance at that and, you know, <laughs> that blew up. So here I am. <laughs> <laughs> well, just talking back to something that you did mention about, you know, being in your 50s now and finding a new strength and a new freedom as you get older, I think that there's a lot of women who do get into their sort of older years, 50s, 60s, whatever, however old, and think they want to have this creative life. They want to write or paint or whatever it is that they've not been able to do. But sometimes I think there's that feeling that, oh, I'm too old for it now. I need to just, you know, leave that to everybody else and just retire or whatever. What would you say to those women who might be feeling those urges but feeling maybe that they've left it too late? Yeah, look, you're never too old. Mm. Artists are the risk takers. And I would say just risk it it's terrifying it might not work you know I've I've spent years trying to make things work I still get rejections and failures and you know all the rest of it I keep on going and I think just remember that you you know to 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 live the creative life for, for so many of us women to finally live the creative life to do what we've always wanted to do that we've had a burning passion for maybe since high school since our Mm -hmm. teens or since Mm -hmm. we were young women to finally take the plunge and risk is a glorious and supremely satisfying thing and you know often we don't have the time to do this or the energy to to carve out that space until we are older until all those domesticity of a partner of children of you know a career whatever it is until they are all softening and fading away you know we often don't have the time to do it but I would just say seize it Mm. seize the moment because you will never know a satisfaction like it it is just deeply deeply pleasurable when you create something and it works, you know, that might be a painting or a drawing or a composition or, you mm-hmm. know, or story, a poem, whatever it is. But it's incredibly, it's medicinal. Mm. When it works. So I would say risk it. What a fantastic note to end on, Nikki. I know that you have to go. Um, I'm yeah, talking to you. I know we could we could talk all day. I'm sure. I'm sure we'll get the opportunity again. But definitely, everybody out there, get a hold of Dissolve and. I have to say, Nikki, just before I read Dissolve, I read The Ripping Tree and absolutely loved it. That's your first foray into historical fiction and just gets better and better. So, And I'm thinking there could be a sequel in the making. Is that right? Yes. I mean, I haven't started writing it yet and I've, I've got to do something else in between, but I wrote it because I, in a way that I wanted to continue the story of Poss, my protagonist. Mm-hmm. I fell in love with it as I was writing her and I just, I want to see where she goes. So yes, in the future, if I'm so lucky, I'd, I'd love to write a sequel. So thank you, Pamela. Oh, great. No, well, I hope I can talk to you about Poss next time. That would be wonderful. Exactly. Thank you for your glorious podcast words of wisdom and your own writing, madam. Thank you.
Thanks so much, Nikki. I'll let you go and do your pickup. Yeah, I bet you have to run now. Yeah, grab the cookies. Okay, thanks. Bye. 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 <laughs>and get exclusive access to the extended audio and video of the monthly craft episode. And you can connect with me through the website at rightsforwomen.com, on Instagram and Twitter at W4WPodcast, the Facebook page Rights for Women, or find me and my writing at pamelacook.com.au. Have a great week, and remember, every word you write, you're one word closer to typing the end. <laughs>